Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber. We're at episode 433, the back end of a Wednesday doubleheader. Had an earlier show today with Bob Schaefer and Touch Em All. We had Red Sox Lou Merloni on. Uh, today we're going to touch on pitching again with, with Jim's show. But before we get to it, want to thank our audience, 65,000. Appreciate your support. We're, we're inching closer to that number today. I think we'll get it by the end of the day. Uh, sports Podcast Group and the Webbies. We've been nominated for Baseball Podcast of the Year, thanks to your guys' support. Also want to uh, show appreciation to Jaw Bats, the newest baseball bat certified by Major League Baseball. Jeff Fry, our very own Shegon podcast host on the network, hit a double down at Fantasy Camp using that bat. And uh, my son Tanner's using his as well, the M110 model, both lefty and righty. Loves the balance, loves the finish. Uh, if you go to the website, use RVG at checkout. You will get a discount not only on a, a great maple bat, but you can use it for any of their merchandise. Highly recommend it. And then because of the attention we're getting now, I uh, just want to thank uh, our newest support system, Millions, which will be uh, working with us on social media and advertising, um, at, working with advertisers on our show. Uh, we appreciate your guys' support. We're just getting going with them this week officially. So thanks to you guys as well. With that, uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. I always love the stories. We get to talk before the show, share stories about the kids and whatnot, and I always enjoy hearing the the personal side of uh, what's going on in our world. All us dads are going through the same thing, trying to help our kids out. But uh, welcome back to your show. Well, thank you, Dave. And uh, hello, everybody. Hope you had a good week. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how you feel if you, if you recognize that song there, but way back those uh, those 80s WWF wrestling, that was the, the Hulk Hogan, uh, I Am a Real American song coming out. Somebody sent me that this week. Our audience is getting a little bit more into our music, I guess. So they're sending me suggestions for the week. And uh, we had 42-year-old, I'll have to send you a video on him, Rob Semerano uh, from New Jersey, former minor league pitcher, last pitched in professional baseball in 14, 2014, is now potentially making a comeback. Has a couple of tryouts with some MLB clubs, uh, has his fastball up to 101 miles an hour. We know velocity is not the end-all, be-all. But uh, what a tremendous story, tremendous picture. We had him on the podcast yesterday with Kevin and I. Um, have to send you a video to get your opinions on, especially as a longtime pitching coordinator, longtime scout, uh, and so much experience, not just as a player, but as a coach and a scout. Love to get your opinion on him. Oh, that would be excellent. Excellent. Um, it's funny you bring up, uh, because initially I didn't realize it, <clears throat> but you bring up the name uh, Hulk Hogan. So it's funny when you travel around playing baseball and the whole thing, whether you're playing or scouting or coaching. And uh, so I'm in instructional ball in 1982 down in St. Petersburg, Florida. And we used to go into uh, this place called the Cowboy. It was an old cowboy type bar, big, big room and they had big screen TVs. And we would watch Monday night football. and we got there a little early and we got a big round booth. Uh, service was a little slow, so we decided to go up to the uh, bar area to order some food uh, and something to drink from the uh, bartender behind the bar. And as we count back to our booth, who do you think is sitting in our booth with two of his friends but Hulk Hogan? <laughs> oh, wow. And he goes, you know, in that big husky voice of his, he says, oh, sorry, fellas, uh, didn't realize someone was sitting here and the whole thing. 
And he says, uh, we'll get up. And we said, no, nah, just join us. We got plenty of space. So we sat there and uh, had our dinner and gotten ready for Monday Night Football uh, with Hulk Hogan. Then you go ahead. No, I said, sweet. It's, it almost looked like I knew what I was doing playing that music for you. Exactly. And then I'll, I'll take it one step further and then we'll get on with the show. Um, I'm working for the Toronto Blue Jays and we're talking about uh, around 2000, 2001. And the trainer over there is, of course, Tommy Craig. And we're in spring training. We're all out in the field uh, getting our work in. And um, this big old SUV pulls in. Well, each day of the week when I realized who was coming and getting out of the SUV, a brand new big old SUV pulled in. But, you know, it's like you had at least five of them for each day of the week. Who was it? Hulk Hogan. Because at the time, I don't have the, the name of the, the piece of equipment, but because <clears throat> Tommy is officially based out of Toronto with the Major League Club, he had a piece of equipment that had not yet been uh, licensed or cleared in the States, I believe. Uh, and it worked similar to uh, ultrasound, um, but it was more like a laser mechanism or something similar to that. And... Uh, Hulk Hogan would come in in the morning, spend about an hour and a half in there with TC working on him. And he, I would say at that time, I don't know his exact age, but he's probably somewhere in his mid to mid fifties. But when he would get out of the SUV in the morning, he'd walk in like he was 90 years old with the aches and the pains and all the thing. And an hour and a half later, he'd be hopping out of that place like he's 30 years old and he would get out, jump in the SUV, most of the times go to the airport and fly to some place that he was wrestling that night. So the latter half of Hulk Hogan's career, uh, he owes a lot to Tommy Craig, who was one of our guests on our show, because he treated him to get him ready to make sure he could uh, he could function as a, as the superstar Hulk Hogan. We'll have to ask him about that. I wonder if that was he was ahead of the curve with the infrared light, because that seems to be popular now, the, obviously the cold baths and whatnot. Yeah people are into, but the infrared is, is, uh, quite popular now. Yeah. T- Tommy's been a hot topic on our network the last week and a half. He's been a guest on your show. And then we had him on with Mark Wiley, who funny, he pops up. He's like our Kevin Bacon. He actually rented Mark Wiley's house at some point in time during their, their baseball career or house that he had owned. So yeah, Tom, now we've got him connected to our theme music. So Tommy won't go away. We'd love him to pieces. Yes. Uh, we'll have my more. So you, you, you were going to, you were going to chat today a little bit about, um, you know, we, we, we get caught, people get caught up in the velocity as it pertains to pitching. And we all agree on this network anyway, that it's about getting outs. Um, you were going to start the show a little bit, uh, with, with some numbers that measure outs today. Am I correct on that? Yes. I, I don't, you know, I, I, it's not that I'm going to go down a list of all the different metrics and, and logarithms and analytical measurements that are, you know, are popular in use. But when you, when you see a, about the majority of analytics that gets passed down from the big leagues and then it becomes popular within the minor leagues and then colleges and high schools and the younger crowd. The thing where we're missing the point in my mind is that when analytics first started, um, one of the first things that they always talked about was um, on base percentage. And this was um, 
it was all the conversation about on defense, you want to create outs and on offense, you want to limit outs. And this is part of the initial conversation of why on base percentage was so important. Um, so the beginning world of analytics or sabermetrics, if you want to call it, <clears throat> was about how to get outs, how to register outs. Um, now, there are individual pitch components that assist us in how to get outs uh, and how to pitch deep into games. First pitch strikes, um, percentage of strikes thrown in a game, um, and then you can apply it to if you're sitting there watching the game, evaluating uh, overall com overall co uh, fastball control, overall command, um, being able to throw your secondary pitches for strikes and fastball counts, pitch combinations. These are the things that used to be spoke about nonstop in a development process and when you would evaluate uh, a pitcher whether you were going to evaluate him because you thought that you would draft him high, or if he was a minor leaguer, you would evaluate him uh, on these type of parameters to see if he was to be promoted and, you know, climb up the ladder and eventually get to the big leagues. And there was a structured setup of, um, from pitching coordinators that I had worked with to when I was a pitching coordinator myself, there was a structured setup about, different things that needed to be achieved, especially for starting pitchers, to get promoted to the next level. Because the concept was similar to our conversations about, hey, you're going to make uh, 20 starts in low A. There was other parameters in low A. You're going to learn to repeat your delivery, you know, say 60, 65% of the time. You're going to go to high A. You're going to learn how to repeat your delivery 70% of the time. And we can use different tools like video analysis and slow motion video and stuff to help us assess if this is getting done. But we also do understand that the result of repeating your delivery and repeating your release point and doing it in an efficient manner is that your stuff's going to play up, you know, whether it's your extension out front, your spin rate, all things. So that is where those measurements become part of the analysis if you're achieving the goals, but the goals are about repeating your delivery. The goals are about creating an environment where you get outs. And in order to get outs, now we have to take into consideration the batter, what the batter's strengths are, what his weaknesses are, but what the batter's perception is on that given day. Um, we've taken a lot of that out of the game. I could I could go back and tell you stories when you warm up in the bullpen, you know what kind of stuff you have on that day, good or bad or indifferent, and now we're going to figure out how to get these guys out. And in those type of situations, you know, you might go, especially for the first five hitters that were pretty good, uh, you might go and throw the ball three to six inches off the plate on the inner half to see uh, you know, what's going on here. You know, how are they perceiving your fastball? How are they perceiving that location? Is the batter's hip moving first? Is his hands moving first? All the things that make a good hitter or a bad hitter. And then you would then process that information as you're on the go and say, here's how you're going to pitch these guys, you know, deeper into the game. 
But the whole thing was we're figuring out what to do to get out. Okay, we're not figuring out. Um, the goal is not when you see the current uh, so-called scientific pitch labs. The goal is not. Um, well, let's try to figure out what to do so we can increase our spin rate. Or let's try to figure out what to do to improve our pitch shape. And in a lot of those situations, the wrong um, learning mechanism that's put into place is we start to manipulate what we do in order to achieve the result. Yeah, reverse scientific method. It's, yes. uh, so with, and I understand the need to go in with a game plan as a pitcher. It's the same, you know, you see football teams, they script uh, plays to, to, to just kind of see where the, the other team is at. I get that, you know, if it's first time through or first couple of batters, but the importance of um, trusting what you see, I think that's the phrase they used in analytics, your eyes deceive you. And, and it's been overplayed. Um, to talk to that a little bit, because I think that's an important point for the young kids out there where you're talking about, you're going in with a plan, but your perceived velocity you know, you don't know what's going on with that hitter that day. He may be a little bit behind your fastball that day because his thumb's sore or his back sore, or he just isn't feeling right that day. And the, the next pitch says, oh, breaking pitch or change up where now you're going to speed that guy's bat up a little bit. Um, talk, talk to the importance of that, of, of just being cognizant on the mound as a pitcher. Right. Well, one, one of the gifts that a really good pitcher has is that not only does he have the ability to focus on the catcher's glove, and even if initially that's what, what I like to call a soft focus, you know, we're not staring a hole through it because we're gonna, our attention span is going to be lost, but it's a soft focus which then narrows down into a more um, narrow focus to you know, throw the ball to the glove. But the really good pitcher also has the ability to see the batter swing on that particular pitch. And then he makes his adjustments based upon what the hitter did, where his swing path was, how he reacted. I mean, it could be as simple as you throw the guy two fastballs and he fouls both of them, you know, over the first base dugout and he's a right hitter. Well, obviously he's not getting around on your fastball, so I'm not going to throw him a next pitch uh, slider and speed his bat up. Okay, so I'm not a big advocate of, like, individual pitches being scripted because you take the whole concept of pitch combinations and pitches that look similar, pitchers that react similar um, between the fastball and changeup. The fastball and changeup is a good example. You'll come across, you know, a young guy, he's throwing two seam fastballs, but four seam changeups. Well, the goal of the changeup is to look like the fastball but throw the hitter's timing off. So it's the hitter's perception. And if now the ball's spinning two different ways, well, the hitter, the good hitter is going to see the difference. Um, so if you throw two seam fastballs, you should work on throwing two seam changeups uh, and vice versa with the four seamer. The other habit that's done is, especially with the younger players, but you can even see it in pro ball when, let's say that the pitcher doesn't have particularly, you know, large hands and the first change up everybody teaches everyone is a circle change and a lot of times that circle change they they try to tighten that circle up between the thumb and the index finger and what happens is um, 
there's an overpronation at release point. So it's almost like you're throwing a screwball. Well, then that fastball becomes a, I mean, I'm sorry, that changeup becomes a trick pitch. Well, a trick pitch doesn't look like a fastball. So we're defeating the purpose of what a fastball changeup is supposed to be, okay? Because either we're, we're trying to increase the sink, we're trying to increase the shape, we're trying to make it more nasty. It doesn't have to be nasty. It has to complement your fastball, you see? It's not an entity upon itself. It works hand in hand with your fastball. One of the things that a nice changeup does then when <clears throat> it replicates the spin and the arm slot and everything's the same as the fastball, arm speed, body speed, the whole entire thing is the good changeup used properly allows the pitcher more leeway to miss spots with his fastball. Right? Because the hitter's oh, yeah. not sit, just sitting there on that fastball. Okay. Um, you know, similar to uh, similar to um, nowadays, the like you'll see on the internet, you'll see um, different people like break down pitches, and they'll show uh, like Jordan Hicks's insane ninety-eight mile an hour sinker, you know, two seamer. My question is, yeah, that's fabulous. That's that's great, but that that's like a that's like a sideshow in the circus. What what complements that? What pitch does he throw that will take the hitter off that? You know, the good hitter. Well, where's his slider? Okay. So if we're working on, and believe me, behind the scenes, here's the here's the problem that happens with uh amateur baseball coaches and players and their perceptions of what goes on a major league level. There's guys behind the scenes and they are, yes, they are working on the pitch shape of that slider. So it complements that two seamer. Okay. If we're doing that, boom, we're working on the right, you know, on the right path. But what happens in with amateur pitchers is they see online, you know, on Twitter, Oh, look how nasty that uh, two seamer is that guy throws. And they go out and they try to duplicate that. Well, it becomes an over-manipulation of the baseball and they're not getting to a consistent release point and all the things start to go haywire. And then they wonder why, you know, they're not performing as well or or maybe they're taking a little bit more time to recover because they're trying to manipulate the baseball. They don't... Go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, it's it's they they see things in a vacuum. They're not putting it into a context like you are where there's... You know, it could be anywhere from, you know, two to six pitches where you're setting a hitter up. And uh, they, 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 not only do they not see it, it's not being coached right now at the younger levels. It's overcoached, undertaught. They're not, they're, not, uh, they're not being put into these pitching sessions to learn approach like you're talking about. So I think it's important for all. Is, is that what you, when you get to forced and perceived velocity, is that, that this is kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, because um, just think about the conversation we had last week about uh, the new analytic swords, right? right? And we had a little discussion on that. Um, but my question to that is, um, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Meaning, you can't have every other measurement in the in the school or the realm of what I call forced velocity. All the measurements out of the pitcher's hand. Okay, we can't 
put so much credence on how important that is and then turn around and come up with a metric and think that uh, it's a highly valued uh, uh, metric of the hitter's perception. Because check swings is about the hitter's reaction to the pitchers you're pitching. Could have been the pitch, the three pitch combination you did. Could have been the nastiness of that particular pitch. You know, um, I, I listened to a conversation uh, you had with uh, uh, Jim Cornell on on uh, that podcast, and the name of uh, Michael Kopech came up. And initially, Jim made a very very valid point, and it was that. Um, well, this sword measures that fastball he throws, that four-seam fastball he throws. But, like, they're not telling us, well, what happens when he doesn't throw it that nasty? Are they, are they hitting it? Are they hitting it hard? Uh, he brought into other uh, factors that go into, you know, why all of a sudden this guy that rates so high with getting check swings, which in their eyes is a measurement of he has nasty stuff and then then isolate that pitch, but they can't figure out, well, you know, why is he pitching to an ERA close to six? Um, Now I was lucky enough that I scouted Michael Kopech in high school. Uh, There's a lot of things that go into how he throws the ball, how he reacts to different situations. And I'm going to give an example. Um, I'm in the minor leagues with the Orioles and you know, everybody down there is competitive and they want to be the number one guy on the team, number one guy on the pitching staff and everybody's working hard doing their thing. And I had, uh, I had one pitcher who was a very good friend of mine and a roommate and he was a dominant pitcher in college, right? Big time division one school, big time known for, you know, Hall of Fame pitchers, you know, all-star pitchers in the big leagues. And he was tied with uh, Neil Heaton of University of Miami for uh, the most wins that college season. I think it was 17. Well, he was a six-foot, 175-pound righty, sinker-slider guy, knew how to pitch, knew how to take a little off his fastball, knew how to sink a little more, knew how to do the fastball changeup combinations, sinker-sliders. Then he'd drop a nice slow curveball in on you. Not, everything he did complemented what he had already, you know, what his pitches were or, or other aspects of that, right? Um, and um, and then so you would classify him as it, it just a. I'm not comparing them, but just the type of pitcher you'd be thinking uh, for the audience to have a, a visual here of Greg Maddox. Right. Uh, that type of style of pitcher. And then there was another guy on the staff. Uh, I mean, we're talking on the old Ray guns. This guy's pumping 94, 95, 96. I mean, it's just amazing. And, you know, a modern day example of it would be uh, the type of pitcher like a Kelvin Escobar or a, or a Ben Sheets. He, he's pumping fastballs. He's got a nasty curveball. He's got a pretty good slider. Change-up's okay. And you're sitting there in instructional ball, you know, doing the gun or, or doing the pitching chart, sitting by home plate. And one of the things you realize is that 
he's facing a big lefty power hitter from the Cardinal organization. And uh, first pitch fastball, 97. And you're like, man. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, I want to I wanna continue to work out, continue to improve so that I'm now, I'm going to be able to do what he does and I'm going to be able to do what the Greg Maddox type guy is. And then I'd be a perfect combination of a pitcher with really good stuff. And then let's see, you know, how I go and take on the world. So those are things that are going through your mind. But now you see the second pitch. The first pitch at 97 was ball one. Second pitch was 98, ball two. Third pitch, fastball, 91. Well, the guy hit it like 420 feet to right center. So the point that uh, Jim made on his podcast was, you know, what were the other factors that um, weren't discussed about Kopech? Well, I happened to see Kopech pitch in high school, and there was a little bit of that in him. He was nasty. He was nasty fastball slider, and it would sink and run and the whole thing. And it's amazing, even though he, he threw very hard. Um, that whole conversation in Swords was about his forcing fastball, you know. Um, so all of a sudden, we, we, you know, have we become less uh, less efficient at executing my, my secondary pitches? Are we continually falling behind in the count? And that was the point that, that Jim had made. But my point is that if, um, if we're going to start measuring based on a hitter's perception, well, then – you know, you got to go back to the old ray gun or the stalker and and not have it always set on peak velocity, but have it set on when the ball passes the hitter. Because now we're going to understand how the pitcher is on that day. And then we could use the radar gun as a tool to assist him in getting through that game as a starting pitcher to, deep pit, to pitch deep into the game. Because he's starting to understand um, if everything's coming together and he's throwing the ball efficiently, all those other factors, you know, will improve. So part of the discussion that I've heard recently was that, you know, they they attempted to standardize that if you throw the ball uh, 95 miles an hour out of your hand, it's going to be, you know, some guys say five miles an hour. The number 6% was thrown out there. But... You know, in reality, since I spent uh, over 10 years as a national scouting supervisor focusing on uh, on pitchers for the Brewers, that with the old Starker gun, you you looked at, it usually was about six to eight mile an hour difference. What's the purpose? I mean, I guess it's it's to, to validate that whatever they're doing is working, That's why they would measure it closer to the hand and closer to the plate. I would, I would love to see one. And I know it's probably impossible by the eye, but at that decision point where the hitter is making contact, which is, you know, six inches out in front of the plate to, I guess, six inches into the plate, that would make more sense in terms of hitters perception anyway. But, but you, you bring up a great point. I hope our audience is grabbing onto it. The information there's, we're inundated with information out there and it's, it all can be useful you know, based on the circumstances, but the difference between how you use it and how it's being used is information properly used is called intelligence. Um, and I think that's, if I'm, if I'm misspeaking, correct me, but it sounds like that's 
what you promote more so than just here's a whole bunch of information. Use it to validate your point. Here's information. Let's let's see how it works. Let's see how it applies to as you go back to getting outs, basically. Right. And when we go back to getting outs as what makes a pitcher successful, um, we then realize that a lot of our our training and a lot of our analysis should be based upon perceived perceived velocity and the perceived um, you know thought process of the hitter. What happens at the hitter? Okay. Um, you know, misnomer that with hitters, I, I hear this all the time, and I can sp- speak from the hitter's side. I, I laugh whenever I hear this, at, even at the, the youth games. As a hitter, whenever I was fouling a ball straight back, you always hear people, you're on it, you're on it. I'm speaking from a hitter's point of view. When I did that, or anybody does it, you're not on it. Um, <laughs> I, I laugh whenever I hear that from we talking about a hitter's perception. Um, we always employ with with our pitchers, hey, when – when a guy's found a straight back, just just raise it an inch for me. Same pitch, just raised an inch, and we're going to get a swing and a miss. Um, but again, I, I digress there. It was something that just popped in my head, and you know how I derail the podcast at least once. No, no. It's a, it's a very valid point because what people are uh, misperceiving there is that the hitter's rhythm and timing was correct, but his swing path was incorrect or he didn't see the ball as well as you, you would want to when he would square that ball up. Um, you know, but it was Ted Williams that brought up in a, 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 I think it was the all-star game where Ted Williams came in on the golf cart and he had had conversations with uh, Tony Gwynn. And there was another setup where you saw he was having uh, lunch or, or dinner with Tony Gwynn and Don Mattingly. Um, and they were discussing and he made the point, you know, that, that, that it's sweet, you're, you, you know, so he might've used the term you're on, you're ju- you know, you just missed it. He's referring to rhythm and timing, not necessarily that you were right on that pitch. Um, I, so I think that's an important thing, but there's where the misnomers come in to where that, you know, you don't hear many people talk about force velocity and perceived velocity. Right, you hear nowadays a lot of things about individual pitch quality, but you don't hear about how that works to get outs, and how that works in conjunction with other pitches to get outs, to get weak contact. All right, um, and I'm going to tell you that behind the scenes on a major league level, that's still part of the process. Okay. Not all the way, all over the place, but there's still people that are doing that, but that's not what's perceived as you go down a ladder in, in youth development. So it's never discussed, never talked about, and it's more into manipulation of the baseball, which we know. So the funny thing about that is if we turn our attention to getting outs, and we turn our attention to becoming a pitcher, the, the lost art of pitching. A lot of conversations recently and a lot of articles written are, are about how people don't hear big league pitchers or big league pitching coaches or whoever's involved in the process of the pitching discuss pitching mechanics. And they always they, they kind of push it aside. 
and say that there's other reasons for either people getting hurt or people not pitching effectively. Um, because they're looking at the end result of the pitch and not, as you've stated many times, the full story of what's gone on in that pitcher hitter showdown. Um, so the ability to see proper pitching mechanics has become slowly a lost art. And I, and I relate this to when we, when we sit back and we continually question like, why aren't the coaches seeing that? Or, or this is the major leagues. Why can't they learn how to make adjustments or different things? I'll go back to approximately 2005, let's say. It was early 2000s. And I'm having a conversation with a big league pitching coach. And he said to me, Jim, it's amazing, but... 60 to 70% of the pitching coaches in the big leagues right now have no idea what they're looking at. And then it gets back to our conversation where, um, where we stated that sometimes the old baseball folk don't want to look in the mirror and realize that they allowed analytics to overtake the game because of, um, what do you want to call it, cronyism or all these other stories about, you know, being drinking buddies or, or whatever. But when a big league pitcher coach, who was a pretty successful one, stated that th there's times he can't even have an intelligent conversation about pitching with other pitching coaches. And this is 2005. So now think about current environment. Um, a lot of people being hired out of the ranch or the driveline, people get certified by driveline, and you hear it more and more, even though there's disaster stories about the people that run driveline and, and how they were unsuccessful in their um, transition to professional baseball. Um, there's documented cases of, of people that are hired and how it went wrong. Um, but yet, you know, major league teams now have a, a pitching, a major league pitching coach, an assistant pitching coach, a pitching analytics guy, uh, 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 a data. What I what I I made up the term, but a data translator. So it's a guy that tries to uh, educate the pitching staff on what the data really means and how to apply it to what they do. So now we're talking about five or six hands, uh, you know, stirring the pot there which we know sometimes when everybody collaborates together and works together for the, the primary one goal, it could be a positive, but a lot of those situations, it's a, it's a negative. Yeah. Are, we, are our pitchers losing feel because of all this? Like you got so many people saying so many things and it almost, again, not a pitcher, but it sounds like the reverse scientific method where they've got what they want to prove and they just work back to make sure it proves their point. Do, do, are pitchers losing feel because of this approach? Do you think? I believe Yes. I believe once that we take the process of the goal is the result, then we lose all the aspects of field. And then we're also overloaded, especially for the, with the younger ball player. They're just overloaded with so much information that, you know, until someone takes them aside and says, listen, this is about repeating your delivery. This is about repeating your delivery in an efficient, you know, quality fashion. So if you talk to me, I'm going to be, you know, talking about my concepts of triple spin and, and how to throw the ball efficiently and 
how to throw the ball out front. Um, you know, there's there's people that have realized the 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 negative uh, the negativity of what they call uh, arm lag. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a simple thing. Of, you know, are you throwing the ball? Are you starting to throw the ball? Is your arm, is your shoulder throwing the ball out back like a javelin thrower, or are you throwing the ball out front? Are you the high school kid from Texas who used the rotator cuff and scapular stabilizers throwing the whole process of throwing the ball? Or are you, you know, Nolan Ryan that was tested at that time uh, when he was with the Rangers and his external rotators just initiate the slowing down process? We heard uh, Tommy Craig speak about everybody wants to work on the accelerators. You know, he, he used the analogy. I never, I never had a car that the accelerator uh, wore out, but the brakes certainly do and yeah. um, and how they don't work on the brakes enough. And then I take it a step further and say, and then as the transition from, you know, he went from the brakes to the, to the, to the shootout back. And, and then there's a transition further down, uh, you know, the kinetic chain and the, the larger muscles, the prime movers uh, do all the work of reabsorbing the force that doesn't get to the baseball. Uh, a lot of this comes into play, but, I do believe, you know, and again, we're not there behind the scenes, so we don't have the full depth uh, to analyze what's going on. But when, when you see not only pitchers but hitters continually going to the iPad in the dugout, um, you know, what happened to the day where Catfish Hunter, after he got the, the you know, three outs that he was pitching, He'd go into the clubhouse, and they asked him one day, "Well, Catfish, aren't you looking to, looking to see how your hitters are doing?" And he goes, "Not my job. Their job is to hit. My job is to pitch." So he would go in, and do his thing, so that he could stay in the moment, and feel what he was doing, and stay with his rhythm and timing. Um, another thing that popped up this past week is. Uh, we had mentioned this once before, and I, I'm going to post some some pictures. Now, I'm not a big uh, still photography guy, you know, taking stills of videos and stuff. But sometimes when you're trying to express to a player to, to teach him something new, it's easier to isolate one movement within the, the throwing motion and focus on that, that this is what this is why we're doing the other things we're doing in practice and in our training, because we're looking to correct this, okay? Where some, especially for the younger guys, they look at a video, and it, there's a lot of information in that video. And next thing you know, you're slowing it down, and you're almost stopping it to show them. So in those type of uh, learning environments, I can understand the use of the still photography. But um, it popped up again, conversations about inverted W and the whole thing. Well, I can go down a list, and I'm going to post some pictures this week, I'm going down a list of uh, of Mark Pryor, Kerry Wood, um, Rich Harden of the A's, and then the outlier, C.C. Sabathia. And C.C. Sabathia proved that it's more about the rhythm and timing than the actual positioning when you start uh, the, the acceleration phase because he was a big man, okay, and tall. But he stayed closed down the slope, down the pitching mound, to where when he started the acceleration phase, he was never, 
no longer in the inverted W or the M or what I used to refer to it as the praying mantis position. But you could see a lot of these big league pitchers. Um, uh, uh, here's an example. I read an article where a former big league reliever was just named to a, um, it's a coaching position, but he's going to be somewhat of a coach, assistant, evaluate um, like AAA pitchers and the big league pitchers and then be kind of a liaison to help in, uh, in all the information that's being gathered. And they show a picture of him and he's got a low front side. The front elbow is already gone and it just looks like the, and the arms not even in throwing position yet. And it looks just like the Mark Priors or the Rich Hardens or, you know, of the world that, that you could see it. Um, then you get back to the Kerry Wood story. I can show you video and then pictures of Kerry Wood with perfect mechanics. And then three pitches later with the worst mechanics you ever saw. And Kerry Wood said, listen, when, I, when you're out there trying to get big league hitters out, you know, I know what good mechanics are, but, you know, the heck with mechanics. I got to get people out, you know. Um, so um, the, the thing about that is, um, is that first time I saw Mark Pryor, all right, and it was very similar to uh, when I saw S Steven Strasburg, I classified it as linear mechanics, they were so focused on being on the drive line that there was no rotational forces or the timing of the rotational forces were completely off. And that's what led to the problems. I wouldn't necessarily classify it as some of the positions they were in so we can characterize them as inverted W or this or that. It was more that the rhythm and timing was off. So you were in those positions at the wrong time. And, um, that, when you combine it to the story of the big league pitcher and coach I told you and some of the others, then you ask the question, well, why can't they see it? Well, you know, remember what we talked about last week with the size of the signing bonuses or the size of the, the contracts that are being paid out. Um, are you going to be the guy that uh, screws something up because the guy misperceives what you're trying to tell him? You know, it's a, it's a very slippery slope to be a coach in that environment, you know, nowadays. So it's not simple, simply put, you know, why can't they see that? I'm sure there's people that see it, but how do you deliver the message? That's what becomes the difficulty. Yeah. Um, so you're, I mean, the stuff that you're talking about right now, these are conversations that may be, uh, that are probably happening. But in addition to all the, the misnomers we talked about, there's, there's some communication barriers possibly. If somebody does have the same ideas that not always a welcome uh, environment to, to deliver it. Yes. Like, so the, the, to end the conversation about mechanics and to get into some of the other guys that we've mentioned before. So Dr. Ishmael Gallo uh, put, a, put a Bruce Lee quote up on his uh, Twitter page. And it's the more relaxed the muscles are, the more energy can flow through the body. So just think about when I say, you know, you're not supposed to use your arm muscles. You're supposed to be like Nolan Ryan. Um, Nolan Ryan continually talked about rhythm and timing. He didn't talk about brute strength or grunting and groaning. Uh, Tommy Craig came on and used even the same words as mine. Uh, the arm's supposed to go for the ride. Uh, when you watch a lot of pitchers nowadays, the arm's not going for the ride. And then, you know, yet I've uh, 
drawing parallels between pitching and the and the and the flow of energy through the pitching mechanic is similar to um, creating force and controlling force like the martial art of Aikido. And here's Bruce Lee with this quote: "The more relaxed the muscles are, the more energy can flow through the body." Um, that's the goal. That's the goal in the proper pitching mechanic, but that's become a lost art in in teaching it, analyzing, evaluating it, and you know moving ahead. Um, um, now, to further that point, in the uh, recent past, um, we've talked about Dr. Ishmael Gallo and his baseball flow, Christopher Romano, the minor league strength coach, in his book, Move Like a Pro, Sandy Koufax in the biography, um, talked about levers. It's not about muscles. It's about levers and, and the levers being in the proper position. Um, you got proof, you got proper movement patterns. When we go all the way back to Vinny Perez, one of our, uh, one of our initial guests, uh, on the show, um, uh, Tommy Craig talking about need to work the brakes, need to work the deaccelerators so that everything flows through the connect chain. The biggest thing that pops up to me when you combine all of those is all the research that's been done on hip mobility and it, the connection with elbow problems. And listen, I'm going to say to you that if you have imp improper hip mobility, you're going to have shoulder problems also. Just like TC stated, usually it starts with the shoulder and there might be a weakness and all of a sudden it comes out in the elbow. Um, but all of these guys talk about movement patterns, flow of energy, rhythm and timing, working on the posterior chain, right? Um, I'm going to post those pictures, like I said, um, you know, and then basically in closing, it's like if you listen to a Nolan Ryan or you listen to a Mariano Rivera, most of their conversations are about their release point, repeating their release point and their rhythm and timing. And somewhere along the line, it's gotten misconstrued into everything about, as TC puts it, the accelerators, instead of the actual flow of energy through the kinetic chain. Um, and me personally, I think we go down that path because a majority of the analytic, analytic metrics measure everything out of the pitcher's hand. And I realize it that because that's the way the scientific method works to isolate as many variables as possible. And it's about pitches and pitch manipulation and not about the hitter's perception and the hitter's perceived velocity. Because if you're in the perceived velocity camp, all the things of flow of energy and, and, and the two platforms and the proper rotational forces, you say, wow, of course that's what it should be. And many people say it in many different ways. Uh, there's a lot of really bright people out there that, that are saying the, same, are the proper things. Um, but the difficulty is in the way you say things sometimes. A coach or instructor's job is to find the way to communicate which, with each student so the student learns what they're supposed to do or what they're supposed to accomplish. It's based upon that student. It's not based upon what the teacher or instructor or coach is teaching them. And 
when we start looking at all the metrics that are measured out of the hand, and we start talking about individual pitch shape and, and, and all the isolation of, of what a pitch is, we lose the sight about pitching is about getting outs. All right. Pitch combinations, command, location. Uh, it's not about just velocity. And that's where I think the message gets diluted nowadays. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I grabbed on to many things that, that Tommy said. I take tons of notes while you're talking each week. I get smarter every podcast with you. Um, deceleration should be taken really seriously. We're seeing a lot of injuries, not just with pitchers, but big, strong, athletic men, supposedly the greatest athletes we've ever had in the sport at this time, are, are tearing oblique muscles, swinging a bat, doing the thing that they're paid to do. And you have to look at deceleration. How, how balanced are they um, at the end of that motion, whether it's pitching or hitting, um, you know, working backwards? I, I wish somebody would have a measurement on that. That would be a great analytic to have or a great science project, you know, to, to, to take a look at the balance and reverse it back to what you talk about, rhythm and timing. Are they balanced at the end based on their deceleration method to complement the rhythm and timing of their pitching? And uh, you see these kids on YouTube or whatever social medium they're doing, they're getting running starts, you know, throwing baseballs as hard as they can and no position to field it. And every time they do it, I cringe because there's a little bit more tear in some spots that don't need to be emphasized as much as they are with that. And what they're getting out of it, I have no idea other than a couple of likes on YouTube. Yes. Um, It is all about rhythm and timing. It's It'll go back to Sandy Koufax. It's about the levers being in the proper position. But I think a lot of this comes back when you mention the oblique. Um, now, there's a whole bunch of people in this world that have a long, many more letters after the name than I have and are experts in this type of thing. But when you look at it from my perspective, I think those are the cases where we start to overtrain the stabilizers and they start acting like a prime mover. Um, or as TC puts it, um, maybe, maybe the body has lost sight of, um, eventually we'll only go as fast as we can stop. Um, you know, if, if you're driving an old car around and you know that, you know, within a month, you're going to have to go in and get your brakes serviced, you know, or maybe new brakes. You're not going to be driving around that last month, accelerating all over the place, you know, like a crazy man, because you know that, you know, I'm, I'm not stopping as fast as I used to when this car was new. Um, so especially in the young development in the amateur pitcher hitter, we have to make sure that the prime movers are being the prime movers and the stabilizers are being the stabilizers. Harking back to the, I think maybe the first podcast I did, and I told the story about walking into a, walking into a complex to see a high school guy uh, pitch. And there was all kind of rec games and travel ball games going on in the thing. And I see a whole bunch of, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds doing cross-symmetry, and every single thing they did was they were having their stabilizers act as a prime mover. And, you know, some of them couldn't bend over and touch their toes or, or pick up a box the correct way. 
So we've, we've lost sight of how important it is that the prime movers should do the accelerating and the prime movers should do the deaccelerating and the stabilizers should stabilize. That's the point that we lose sight of. So even though we put on the brakes and that's the external rotators deaccelerating the arm, uh, even though the chute comes out the back and that's the scapular stabilizers taken over, the most important aspect of that is eventually it has to be transferred to the prime movers in your body. If you do that, you stay healthy. Uh, I like the phrase you said, you articulated what I was trying to say very perfectly with, you know, we'll only go as fast as we can stop. I think that's a great message to uh, any pitcher out there right now. It's, uh, you know, you and I were, my younger daughter, before our last podcast had a bike spill last week. That should have been a good message here. Only go as fast as you can stop right there. So it's yeah. great. It's great pissing message. Yeah. And, and you know what? The, 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 the question pops up is um, the way we're training these guys nowadays, uh, the sellout for velocity, the sellout for uh, exit velo. Are we creating a player that is now increasingly accelerating faster then they can stop. Have they have they lost that kinesthetic awareness in their body that they're not going to go too fast as they can stop, or it's going to be overdone. And I think that's what you're seeing with all the injuries then to the stabilizers, because the stabilizers are being trained to be the prime movers, and in doing that, all of a sudden you have the oblique problems. You have the the rotator cuff problems, you have the uh, labrum problems, the elbow problems, because we're not using the prime movers as either the accelerators or the deaccelerators, and we're focused on the stabilizers. We're over-focused on the stabilizers. Um, you know, if we, we've got a long list of people that said that they won't do any rotational work with anybody under 14 years old. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're 18, that you should be focused on that. You should be focused on what you, as an individual person, based upon your body type, your muscular structure, your muscular maturation, your chronological age, your skeletal age, and what's the next step for you to do it. But you don't see a lot of that. You know, um, the message that everybody's seeing in social media and all around and on television and on baseball broadcast is all about um, the overcreation of force that can't be controlled and can't be handled. Um, you know, they, they marvel at a hitter who hit a home run uh, while he was falling down. Well, my question is, well, why is he falling down? You, you know, um, we, we don't focus on the things that are going to bring us long-term success and long-term health. We focus on the anomalies of, of something insane that we saw, you know, the more insane it is, the, the, the more hits it gets, uh, the, the more people talk about it. Um, well, that le leads to bad things all around as far as in the development of healthy pitchers or healthy ballplayers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as we said, you know, I'll go back to that Bruce Lee quote, you know, uh, it's all about how loose the muscles are so that we can transmit energy through the chain. Now, remember, the, the energy isn't being transmitted through the muscles. The energy is being transmitted through the levers. 
Okay. That's a key point. It's the levers in the proper place. It's the levers being in the place where they can function as part of the whole. Um, but our focus and attention right now is on the muscles. And uh, just like TC has stated, in a majority of times, it's the muscles that accelerate and not the muscles that deaccelerate. So in layman's terms, we should be focused on our pulling movements more than our pushing movements. We should be focused, as the story went about Pat Henkin, whenever he could grab a tubing and do some external rotation, he did it almost to the point, as TC put, that he had to, he had to monitor a little bit, work on the pulling muscles, at least in a three-to-one ratio over the uh, pushing muscles. Um, and I think in closing, that's the message we're trying to deliver. I love that and broke it down. Uh perfectly for the kids out there. So I'm going to recommend to kids and parents too, when you, when you're listening to our podcast and this one in particular, have a notepad by you, have a, have a pen or pencil, write stuff down. Cause this is good stuff. Listen to it again. Uh, be, feel free to reach out and ask questions. Uh, we love that. And, uh, Jim, thanks so much for a great podcast, tons of information. I think it's, uh, it flows nicely and looking forward to, to next week and, uh, really excited about our, our audience here hoping today pushes us over that 65,000 mark. It's a big, big marker for us. Appreciate the support with the two awards, the sports podcast uh, awards, and then the Webby's baseball podcast of the year for our whole network. And then jaw bats, uh, RBG at checkout. You won't be disappointed with their, their very well-made bats, maple uh, M110 models with Tanner's been using. I think Jeff Fry had, I want to say he had the P72. I'll have to check with him, but the great nonetheless, to millions. Appreciate you working with us uh, with our newfound popularity uh, to handle our marketing strategies and our advertisers. So thanks so much. And Jim, thanks to you. Appreciate what you did today. Great show. Thanks, Dave. And uh, to the audience, just uh, try to learn, try to keep moving forward, put one step in front of the other. And uh, all else fails, remember the most important thing is to stay healthy. Great, great, great message. With that, episode 433, Toe the Rubber, in the books.